I'll just sit down. Please rise for the word of God. Today we're reading from 1 Samuel 1, 9 to 18. And just to uh, give you a little bit of preface here, there was a man named Elkina who lived in the hill country in Ephraim. He had two wives, one who had children and the other named Hannah who did not, as God had closed her womb. The wife who had children taunted and irritated Hannah for years, often to the point of tears. On one of these such occasions when Hannah was provoked, she was weeping. And this is where we're starting in verse 9. Once, when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Please be seated. Thanks, Faye. How many of you have ever heard of Ed Kimball? I didn't think so. Ed Kimball was a Sunday school teacher in the 1800s. Through his ministry, he converted a man named Dwight Moody, the great American preacher who literally preached to thousands. Dwight Moody Moody discipled J. Wilbur Chapman, an evangelist in his own right. J. Wilbur Chapman had an assistant named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday would someday travel from city to city, holding meetings at which hundreds of people came forward and gave their lives to Christ in every city he visited. Out of his meetings, those so converted would often form prayer groups. And one of these groups in Charlotte, North Carolina, brought another evangelist to town named Mordecai Ham. 
And at a meeting held by Mr. Ham, a young man named Billy Graham was present, who dedicated his life to Christ. And Billy Graham, through the medium of TV, has preached the gospel to more people than anyone in history. Five evangelists, Moody, Chapman, Sunday, Ham, and Graham, who for a century and a half have led tens, maybe hundreds of thousands to faith in Jesus Christ. Tens of thousands of lives changed, tens of thousands, many of whom have shared Christ with others, seeing them also come to faith. And that's to say nothing of Samaritan's Purse, an organization that brings humanitarian relief in the name of Jesus to catastrophes when they happen across the world, an organization founded by Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son. And this chain began with a Sunday school teacher named Ed Kimball, men who quietly shared the gospel with a group of boys a century and a half ago. Have you ever heard of him? Neither did I until recently. Has God heard of him? Absolutely. Who led Ed Kimball to faith? And who led that person? There is an unbroken chain of people that stretches back to the first century of countless unknown people, faithful men and women, who spoke and demonstrated the gospel every day. People like Tina, whose life we celebrated at her funeral on Friday, the matriarch of first, second, and now third generation of a family who loves the Lord. Today I'm beginning a series of sermons on the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel outlines the rise of David, whose kingship of Israel is the Old Testament picture of the kingship, not just over Israel, but over all things of Jesus, the Son of God. Um, 1 Samuel includes what is probably the best-known story in the Old Testament, David versus Goliath. It traces the life of Samuel, the first great prophet and kingmaker who anointed the first two kings of Israel. It gives a tragic account of King Saul, who began as a golden boy hero and ends up committing suicide, a paranoid and violent man. And of course, the story of David, a shepherd boy who becomes king. But like the story of Billy Graham starts with Ed Kimball, this all begins with the story of a faithful woman and her prayers. Her name is Hannah. Hannah lived in the time of the judges and lived around the same time as Ruth, maybe even before Samson. She was one of two wives, a man named Elkanah, a Levite who lived in the hill country of Ephraim. Hannah's wife life was miserable because of Elkanah's other wife, named Peninnah. See, Peninnah had, had, had born to her husband sons and daughters, but Hannah hadn't born any. She was barren. The Lord had closed her womb. In our time, that can be a very painful reality for women. The feelings wrapped up in that can be very, very intense. But in Hannah's time, 
one's inability to have children was a very big deal practically. Family was of huge importance. The male needed an heir to carry on his name and to inherit his lands. His children would be the one to take care of their parents in their old age. If a woman had no child, especially sons, if her husband died early, she would be on her own. So the wife's primary purpose was to have children. Elkanah loved Hannah, it's true, but it was a source of great shame to her to be parent. In fact, Elkanah may have taken a second wife, Peninnah, because Hannah could not have children. Despite Peninnah's character, which was pretty nasty, as we shall see, she would have been considered the good wife because she had children. Elkanah loved Hannah, but Peninnah had children and would mock Hannah. So not a happy home. Elkanah went to the town of Shiloh to the tabernacle every year with his entire family to worship and to sacrifice. A righteous man in a world where precious few served the Lord faithfully. On the day of sacrifice, he would give some portions of what was meant to be eaten to Beninah and to her children. But he gave a double portion to Hannah because he loved her. Playing favorites is not the way to contribute to good relationship between one's wives. He should have learned a lesson from Jacob and Leah and Rachel. So, gentlemen, be warned. So, year after year, Peninnah would provoke her grievously to irritate her so that Hannah wept and would not eat. Imagine her life at home, day in, day out. Every day, Hannah would look at these children. Every day, she would feel Peninnah's sense of superiority and condescension. Every day, she would feel her failure to fulfill her responsibility as a wife. Did Alcana ever rebuke Peninnah? Or was Peninnah more subtle? Her disdain of Hannah unnoticed by Elkanah? I'm not sure. But it was a very real dynamic between Peninnah on one hand and Hannah on the other. So this year, when you go to Shiloh to worship, she takes her condition to the Lord and pleads for his intervention. The Lord had closed her womb. Only the Lord could open it. Despite Elkanah's love for her, He cannot comfort or change her situation. Only a change in her circumstances will help. So she prays. She pours herself out before God. She is deeply distressed and weeps bitterly. She is greatly anxious and vexed. Some of you have felt that in your own life. Some of you may feel that right now. When the circumstances of your life come crashing down, great loss, great pain, and you can feel great despair, and it crushes you, what do you do? Only God can change your circumstances or give you the strength to walk you through it. The hymn says, and we sang it this morning, 
when all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. For many in Hannah's situation, he gives peace and strength. In Hannah's case, he changes her circumstances, which is why we have a story recorded for us. God was doing something. But he often doesn't change our circumstances. More often than not, he changes us in the midst of our circumstances to strengthen faith, to strengthen character, to form empathy. So there is Hannah praying at the tabernacle, weeping so much she can't form words. Have you ever tried to talk when you're sobbing? Hannah moved her mouth but can't express. And she vows a vow before the Lord. Hannah is apparently the only woman in the Old Testament who is sent to go to the Lord's house, place of worship, and also to have made and kept a vow. One writer I read called her the most pious woman in the Old Testament. And she says this, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. In the law of Moses, if man set himself apart for the Lord, for a task, for, for worship, for the time he was set apart, he would not drink wine or cut his hair. He was called a Nazarite. So Hannah is saying that if God grants her a son, she will set him apart to serve the Lord all of his life. He will be a permanent Nazarite. Now onto the scene comes Eli. He is both a high priest and judge. He has most authority of anyone in Israel. His two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, served as priests, and we'll hear more about them next week. Eli is sitting on his seat at the doorpost of the tabernacle, observing the worshipers coming and going. And he spies Hannah and watches her for a few minutes. And what does he see? A woman, red-eyed and teary, and her mouth moving, but no sound coming out. Eli, the high priest, a man of great spiritual discernment, who can recognize real faith when he sees it. Not so much. He thinks Hannah is drunk and rebukes her accordingly. How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you, he says. How do you think Hannah feels when she hears this? After fleeing Peninnah's condemnation, she comes to the tabernacle, God's place of worship, only to receive more of the same from God's representative. And who knows how many people around her heard Eli's stinging words. And what was the tone of Eli's rebuke? It sounds pretty harsh. Basically, you're drunk. Get out and don't come back till you're sober. One of the themes that will develop in the next couple of weeks is the failure of the priesthood. 
this class of people who were supposed to lead the Israelites into worship were both corrupt and spiritually inept. That's why God raised up a new prophet, a new judge in Israel in the person of Samuel, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. But here, Eli does not recognize a person offering heartfelt prayers to the Lord. And Hannah says to him, oh no, you've got it all wrong. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring my soul out before the Lord. Do not consider me worthless. I have been praying out of great anxiety and vexation. And Eli, feeling rebuked and embarrassed, I would think, retracts his judgment on her and blesses her instead. Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And Hannah goes away, eats, and is no longer sad. Um, A commentator on this passage says, Eli who possessed spiritual competence because of his office, was, in fact, a spiritual bumbler. The spiritual powerhouse in this narrative was a socially impotent woman from the rural regions of Ephraim in Israel. The high priest, the ruler, in essence, of Israel, versus a woman whom others, and maybe even herself, considered a failure, But it is Hannah, not Eli, who is the hero of this story. Because it's all about the heart. God is much more interested in simple faith than in position. A verse from later on in this book. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Two preachers preach the same sermon... But with only one, God is pleased. Two prayers pray the same prayers, but with only one is the Lord pleased. Two people read the same scriptures every day, but with only one is the Lord pleased. It's all about the heart. The external things, the things that people see, don't matter. Jesus observed two people giving their offerings, one donated bags of money, the other two almost worthless coins. And the widow who donated the coins worshipped while the other man did not. So, how is your heart? I'm a preacher. I'm supported by this church as I study the Bible and open it up to you week after week. And quite literally, when I preach from the word of God, I speak for God, but that doesn't matter to God. The real question is, how is my heart? Do I preach for my own sake, seeking affirmation, or do I preach for the sake of the love of God, God's word and God's people. You can't tell. You can't tell. Only God and I know. So how is my heart when I stand here and preach? How is your heart? What do you value? What do you think about? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. 
Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hannah did that. And in her grief, she went to him. So, where do you go? Then Elkanah and Hannah and Peninnah and her kids went home. And sometime in the not too distant future, the unbelievable happens. Hannah conceives. Her weeping in bitterness changes to weeping with joy. She will have a child. And what will it be? She goes to term and deliver, yes, a boy. God has answered. She's freed from her shame. And she names him Samuel, a name that sounds like the Hebrew word for heard of God. She says, I've asked the Lord for him. But she remembers her vow. She keeps Samuel at home till he is weaned, about three years. Then she brings him to the tabernacle and leaves him to be raised by the priestly family. How hard would that have been for her? Many of you don't have to think very hard to imagine the bond formed between a mother and a child over three years. First steps, first words, hugs, giggles. Did she have any idea when she made her vow how difficult it would be for her to keep it? I don't think so. But in an act, what I think is pretty stunning faith, she takes him to the tabernacle. Hannah says to Eli, remember me? I stood here praying a few years back. For this child, I prayed. And the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. She gives up that very thing that she asked for. That was his most precious to her. She probably wept. And Samuel sobbed with outstretched arms, a toddler wondering why his mom is leaving him. But Samuel has a new family now, the priest at the tabernacle. And Hannah didn't lose touch with him. Every year she made him clothes, and maybe she went every once in a while to see him. Her home was fewer than 20 kilometers from Shiloh, though in that day, good solid two days of at least walking. Shiloh, where Samuel now lived. But see, in her heart, something mattered more to her even than her own child. It was the Lord. The Lord mattered more, and he blessed her for it, because that's as it should be. Wait, Ken. The Lord should matter to me more than my own children? That's a hard truth. But it is not just right to value God more than our children, but it is good. Because to honor him above all things is always the best thing for us. For it is only then that we were living our lives the way we were made to live them. 
And that's not just an inference from this passage. The patriarch Abraham, a thousand years before, had learned that same truth. He also had a miracle child. And he was specifically told by God to offer his son, his only son, Isaac, whom he loved, the scripture tells us, as a sacrifice. And Abraham was going to do it. Even so far as to build an altar, bind his son, take the knife, and being about to do the deed, God intervened, but Abraham did not know that he would do that. As much as he loved his son, God mattered more. Jesus said, There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. But it's the kingdom of God first, then children. We are often told that we need to make God more important than our stuff, our comforts, our conveniences. And we're generally okay with that, though it's a constant struggle for us to put it into practice. But to place the glory of God, to seek his interests above that of our children, takes it to a whole new level. The kind of faith the Father seeks is the kind of faith that lays it all down. Could you do that? Could you give give your children to the Lord and say, here, as gut-wrenchingly painful as it is to do so, for life or death, I trust you with them. And as Hard as that is to imagine, across the world, people do exactly that. When seeing Jesus against the wall, side by side with their children, there are very many who choose Jesus, and they suffer for it. What would you do? Hannah chose the Lord. She chose to keep her vow and entrust her child to the Lord. And as she surrenders this child, who will prepare the way for God's chosen king, she erupts in joyful prayer. And Mary, too, the mother of Jesus, 10 centuries later, also erupted in joyful prayer when she was greeted by the mother of the one who would prepare the way for God's chosen king and was told that the baby inside, Elizabeth, had leaped for joy at Mary's voice. Mary's prayer was clearly patterned after Hannah's prayer. And Hannah's prayer clearly prefigures Mary's prayer. My heart exalts in the Lord, begins Hannah's prayer. My soul magnifies the Lord, begins Mary's prayer. I rejoice in your salvation, says Hannah. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, says Mary. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger, says Hannah. 
He has filled the hungry with good things, but the rich he has sent away empty, says Mary. He brings low and he exalts, said Hannah. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate, says Mary. There is none holy like the Lord, says Hannah. Holy is his name, says Mary. Two women from rural Israel who should not have had babies, babies set apart for God, a Nazarite and a Nazarene, one raised by priests who did not recognize the work of God, and one condemned to death by priests who did not recognize the very presence of God, one who would anoint the king of God's national people, and one who would be the king of God's global people. But both stories begin with a woman in the backwoods of Israel, leaving their faith simply and quietly. Mary, who said, I am the Lord's servant. And Hannah, who took her needs to the only one who could effect a change. Hannah, who not only made but kept her promises to God. Who surrendered to the Lord that which meant the most to her. And with Hannah begins a great story. And you. God is not asking you to do great things. He does not want to turn each of us into a Dwight Moody or Billy Graham. Most of us will be an Ed Kimball, teaches a Sunday school class. A Tina Klukas, quietly living our faith and being used mightily of God. And Hannah, living her faith before her son, giving up all for the sake of God and her too being used mightily of God. And you, teaching your children, loving your neighbor, sharing and living the gospel. That's what God asks of you and of me. Amen. Amen.